Well, as we kick off this morning, I want you to imagine how you would feel about a person, a person in our, in our congregation here, one of us, who was described in these words, a man full of God's grace and power. Imagine having someone here full of God's grace and power. Wouldn't it be great to have that said of you, that others saw in you a fullness of God's grace? And on top of that, they recognised God's power flowing through you. Well, that is how Stephen, a young man by the name of Stephen, is described as the first great persecution of the church broke out, a persecution so great that it would scatter the church pretty much to the four corners of the earth. Now, in preparing for this message, I read through it over and over and reading the commentaries, etc. One thing really stood out immediately to me is the sheer amount of biblical space allocated to the story of the stoning of Stephen and what he said. I mean, if the number of verses is any indication of the importance of a particular passage, then this passage, it would appear, is very important in the overall message of the book of Acts. For example, the very first Christian sermon preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Luke gives about 30 verses to. But to this passage we're going to look at today, he gives double that. And as a result, I guess as, as someone preparing a message, it's very easy for me to come to 60 verses and say, oh, that's ridiculous. How can we possibly cover 60 verses? That, that, well, that's something that we'll leave for people to do in their own time. Well, I'm not going to do that. So today we're going to do some hard work because the Word of God gives us 60 verses here and you can't cut it in half. You can't. And if you've ever wondered, gee, I haven't read through the whole Bible, or if I have, what's the big story? What, what, what really is the summary of the story? Well, Stephen gives it beautifully before the religious leaders. So if everyone wondering what the his story is, his story, in a lot of ways, just read Stephen's words, which we're going to go through today. So in a way, when I look at that, I think, yeah, we skim over this passage quickly to our peril. This morning, we're going to need to work hard together, mining the truth of God's word and being open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he does this wonderful work somehow between my words and your ears. So let's pray as we start. Lord, we come to a passage of Acts today that is, is really big, big in a number of ways, big in its scope, big in its impact. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts and minds that can focus on your word and are willing to be changed and to be challenged by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we, um, Louise and I had the privilege of, of having dinner with Mariam and, and Marzier on, on Wednesday night before they came and spoke. And uh, it was just amazing hearing hearing these ladies kind of up close, talking a little bit about their time in prison. And it really struck me that, 
they'd given out all these Bibles, but they just didn't have Bibles with them in prison. And, and so for them to be able to just sit and to make their way carefully through 60 verses, you know, it would have been such a blessing in there. And they were so touched that we were praying for them while they were in prison. And it was great to talk to the kids at Ignite on Friday night. And they said, oh, I remember that time back in 2009 when Louise got us all to huddle into a, a little tiny room and she got us to pray for the persecuted church. And to then be able to say to Mariam and Mazier, in 2009 when you were in prison, our young people, that week when you went into prison, we were praying for you thanks to Open Doors. I thought it was this lovely circle as it came back around. Anyway, let's open the Word of God to... To Acts chapter 6, verse 8. It says, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performing amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So these are Jewish slaves who'd been freed by the Romans. They've returned to Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean. And then they've formed their own synagogue. Now, we aren't given all the details, but undoubtedly, Stephen was preaching the gospel and they didn't agree with what he was saying. They debated with him and Luke says, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Now, I want you to take note of the capital S there used with spirit. This is not Stephen's spirit, but rather the Holy Spirit of God within him. His dominance in these debates was so impressive that others noted it as being Holy Spirit giftedness within him. Verse 11, so they persuaded men because they couldn't get there, kind of get on top of him. So they persuaded men to lie about Stephen saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. And this roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. Now, throughout this passage, I want you to take note of the progression, if you like. It's very important to notice the progression of the two parties. On one side, you have the Jews, the religious leaders, driven by jealousy and envy over the miraculous signs that Stephen and others were performing in their midst, driven by the loss of their influence amongst so many people. Remember that in the weeks before, 3,000 people had, in a sense, walked away from them to follow these guys. And then a few weeks later, many more thousands also made the shift. So you need to understand that, that lots of people are moving away from these guys and their leadership. And they're driven by the frustration over the Jesus issue. That just would not go away. Thousands of people were choosing to follow Jesus. And that meant these religious leaders were losing status and power. And where did that lead? Well, it led to jealousy and sin. These men persuaded other men to lie about Stephen. They gave false witness against him to have him stopped and eventually to have him killed. We need to be careful we don't do the same thing. Not that we would have someone killed, but that we 
react in the same way internally. When God brings change, see, when God brings new things amongst us, it's so easy for us to slip into sin, to become jealous and envious. And we become stressed over essentially our own place in things. Will will there be a place for us? See, if these learned men who knew the Old Testament scriptures so well had humbled themselves and listened to God rather than resisting him, I have no doubt that they too would have been mightily used by God. Israel could have stepped into their God-ordained role and become a blessing to the nations. But instead, their hardness of heart caused a spiral into sin, murder, and terrible persecution of the church. So that's these guys, the Jewish leaders here. On the other side, we have a young man, Stephen, filled with the grace and power of God. Now, I want you to notice how Stephen responds in contrast to the way these religious leaders respond as the conflict unfolds. Verse 13, the lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. You see, they spiral into greater and greater sin while Stephen's face, his countenance somehow changed and it seems that it became otherworldly, angelic, glowing. And they all noticed it. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? And this was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, Listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end they will come out and worship me here in this place. See, Stephen goes straight on to the offensive. But he does it with grace, calling them brothers and fathers and speaking of our glorious God. See, they are together in this. This is not us and them. Stephen wants them to understand. He wants them to understand that the gospel, the good news, is not an exclusive thing, but rather it is for everyone, for all of us. He dives straight into their national story, their their national identity as the people of God. See, Abraham, when God first spoke to him, He wasn't the father of a nation. He was simply one man. One man to whom God made an amazing promise. One man who listened to God. One man who risked everything to obey God. I mean, there's no way that Abraham packed up his belongings and his family and left his homeland without being ridiculed by his neighbours and friends. 
Abram, as he was then called, lived within a culture where they worshipped many gods. Abraham probably worshipped many gods. But one of the gods, the living God, spoke to him. And Abraham believed the living God and obeyed him. Apostle James says of Abraham, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So Stephen's saying, look, our national identity, our story as God's people begins with a man who heard from God. And in obeying God, he had to go against the wisdom of everyone around about him. That is our story, brothers and fathers. Verse 8, God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued with Isaac. When Isaac became the father of Jacob, when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. So why does Stephen mention circumcision? Well, once again, he's speaking about the very heart of what it meant to be an Israelite. He'd been accused of speaking against the law of Moses. Well, this covenant between God and this man Abram was the foundation of that law upon which everything else rested. And this is where it all began. To the members of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the mention of circumcision just would have been enough, but maybe not for us. We we probably need to be reminded of just exactly what the covenant, the covenant of circumcision was all about. You see, every time a child was circumcised, they read out all these words. So they knew what this was all about. But we, we don't necessarily have that same kind of mindset. In Genesis chapter 12, this is early on, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That is the Abrahamic covenant. You've got to know that one. That is the covenant God made with one man. And that's the first time we see it. The second time we see it in Genesis chapter 17, God reaffirms the covenant with Abram. He goes through it all again and he says, now what you're going to do is you're going to be circumcised. Abraham must have gone, oh, are you serious? God said, no, this is what you're going to do, and it's going to be a sign of the covenant that I just read out between me and you. And then every one of your children, you're going to do that too. Every one of the young men, baby boys, you're going to do that too on the eighth day. In summary, God said, obey me. Leave everything, go where I will show you. I will be your God. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And as a result, you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse your enemies. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. 
It's so important that we, we get this. There is a top-line blessing, isn't it? Isn't there? I will bless you. I will make you great. That's the top-line blessing. But what is the bottom-line responsibility? So that you will be a blessing to the nations. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. What Israel did is they said, we want this one, and they forgot about that one. You know, we can do the same thing. I will bless you because we come into this covenant. We come into this covenant. I will bless you so you will be a blessing to others. And well, did it happen? Well, of course it did. Of course it did. Did Abraham become a great nation? Yes. Did God bless him mightily? Yes. The religious leaders couldn't deny it. God had done everything he'd promised Abraham question was had they been a blessing to the nations bottom line responsibility you see at the time it was one man listening to god and living in obedience one man standing against the whole wisdom of the world around about him but stephen then moves to tell the story of joseph now i don't know if you know the story of joseph if you don't you need to go home and read it genesis chapter 37 it is a great story but stephen gives us a quick little summary here just of the main points Verse 9 says, These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favour before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. Again, Stephen makes the point, listening to God... And being obedient to, to his call is never going to be easy. Initially, no one believed God was with Joseph. His brothers laughed at him. They were jealous of him. And eventually they hated him so much that they sold him into slavery. For years, Joseph trusted God despite horrendous circumstances. When you read the story of Joseph, it's good sometimes to think about the years. Think about the years and years in prison. The years of, did God really give me that dream? Is God really with me? Years and years. For years, Joseph trusted God would come through for him, though no one else believed him. For years, through great injustice and hardship, Joseph trusted God. And did God come through for him? Yes, he did, didn't he? Of course he did. The whole nation of Israel was testimony to the very fact that he did, that God did come through for them. This was their national story. And, and Stephen is just kind of throwing it back in their face, isn't he? He's just telling them the truth. He's just telling them, this is your story. This is who we are. You notice he repeatedly says, our ancestors. He's saying, this is our story, guys. And what is happening now with your rejection of Jesus? And his followers, your rejection of the gospel, is the very thing which our ancestors did over and over again. You continually put to death the prophets. And he's saying, don't make the same mistake. Don't do what our ancestors did. Let us not make the same mistake. Let us not resist what God is doing in our midst. So Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. 
God eventually rescued him and he became governor of the whole country, second under Pharaoh. It's an amazing story. Verse 11, But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. Second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Joseph went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had brought for a certain price from Hamar's sons in Shechem. Now at this point, any self-respecting Jew knew what Stephen was alluding to here. They would be hearing Joseph's words at the end of his life. You see, at the very end of Genesis, as Joseph, at the age of 110, has his children and his children's children and his children's children's children sitting on his knee, he made this promise. He made his children make a promise. He said, God will surely take us up from this place, will take us home. Shechem is in Israel. It's not in Egypt. God will surely do this. Can you guys make sure you take my bones? And you know how long it took? More than 400 years. So we make the jump from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus where Moses appears and it's 400 years. And that's why Stephen can jump immediately to Moses because he knows that his hearers, they know the story. Verse 17, As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Now scholars say it went from 75 to more than a million. More than a million slaves. And they think they probably built the pyramids. Okay? Well, certainly a lot of those big projects that were there verse 18 but then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph this king exploited our people and oppressed them forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die because they were multiplying at such a rapid rate because God was doing exactly what he said he would do he would make 75 people into a great nation and at this stage the Israelites were slaves As I said, they're building the great monuments of Egypt. Surely the Egyptians would want more slaves. You see, their numbers were just accelerating at such a great rate that Pharaoh ordered that the parents would abandon their newborn babies. I mean, this is population control, isn't it? It really is. See, God was faithfully doing what he said he would do. Verse 20, at that time Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him. At home, for three months, they hid him. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them. But they didn't. The next day, he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. 
He tried to be a peacemaker. Man, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. And there his two sons were born. Verse 30. 40 years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai. Let's not rush over it. Let's let the, the years sink in. 40 years is in Pharaoh's palace. 40 years, Moses is being prepared. Isn't he? For 40 years, he's being trained how to lead. And then God does an amazing thing. He takes him out in the wilderness for 40 years of more training, in a sense. 40 years of wandering around following sheep and goats. It's amazing, isn't it? So how old is he at this stage? 80. For all of you who are 80, put yourself there with Moses. 40 years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come, come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You starting to see the pattern here? <laughs> God's people repeatedly reject those God sends for their benefit. Even Moses, the man around who, whose teaching and traditions these men in the time of Stephen had built their lives was rejected and complained about when he led Israel. And he says, through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and saviour. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, as the ten plagues, was it ten? Twelve, no, ten, ten plagues. He led them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses told himself, sorry, Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angels spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to them. The Ten Commandments, which they put in the Ark of the Covenant. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses, even though he had just... This just amazes me. I mean, the greatest religious show on earth was Pharaoh and all of his priests. See, everyone thought Pharaoh was God, didn't they? And why wouldn't you? Because if you're just a slave farming the fields in Egypt 
And you go and see this guy who's standing on these immense monuments and he's standing up there with a gold thing on his head and everyone's worshipping him. Of course you're going to think this guy's God. I mean, it was the biggest religious extravaganza ever imagined. And then Moses comes in, in the power of God, and says, let's, let's have some fun here, okay? It's you against me, Pharaoh. God's with me, by the way. And they start doing a few tricks. And, of course, Pharaoh's magicians go, you want to turn a stick into a snake? That's easy. Watch this. And then as the progression of the plagues goes on, by about the fourth or fifth plague, they're going, whoa, this is, whoa. You see, what's happening over the years is God's people, even though a few of them would have known the story of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, for 400 years, they've started to think there is no God of our ancestors. There's only one God. This guy, Pharaoh, he enslaves us. He has power over us. But you see, through the ten plagues, God shows them, no, this, I'm the real God. This guy's nothing. I'm going to kill the firstborn in every household, except yours. And eventually they get out. This is the God who divides the sea so the people can walk through on dry land. And then the sea comes back over and wipes out the, the Egyptians in their wake. This is the same people who still rejected Moses months later. Verse 39, but our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us. For we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf. And they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it's written, Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods. The shrine of Molech, the star of your god Rephan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Do you see the case Stephen is building against them? They accuse him of speaking against the teaching of Moses in the temple. And he comes back with, come on, you guys are exactly, you're exactly like your ancestors who rejected even the Moses, the great Moses. As though somehow their God could be contained in a temple made by human hands. They'd forgotten just who it was they worshipped, just like their ancestors had done. See, there was value in the temple, there's no doubt about that. It was important to their religious practice. But as we've discovered over the last weeks, with Jesus, everything changed. And the temple is no, now no longer on the hill in Israel. The temple is now in here, within our hearts. But they didn't want to hear this because their whole lives were wrapped up in their position within the temple structures. Verse 44 says, Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. And years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle, the tent, right, was taken with them to, into their new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. 
David found favour with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, his son, who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did. And so do you. And name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hand of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. And they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand and he told them look I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand they put their hands over their ears and began shouting they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul it was nothing in what Stephen said which they could argue against. Do you notice he, he just told them their story? Their story. He told them their story back at them. And finally accused them of doing the very same thing their forebears had done, resisting the Holy Spirit. They became furious with him. I want you to see the scene. I want you to try to imagine the tension in the air these guys are frothing at the mouth. They are frothing at the mouth in rage. They're shaking their fists at him. And in the midst of all this rage, Stephen is serene and at peace during it all. I mean, it's almost surreal, isn't it? In the midst of all of this fury, God gives him a vision of heaven being opened. And he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand in ultimate honour by his father's side. And at this, the Jews just lose the plot. And all protocol is abandoned. Remember, this group of leaders, the Sanhedrin, we know from the story of Jesus, they had no authority to put someone to death. Even though their law said it, because the Romans were there and the Romans were the law, they weren't allowed to put anyone to death. But they are so enraged at him that they just grab him by the hair and drag him out of the city. And it's like they've just lost all sense of, of control. Just imagine what that would have been like. Horrible, scary stuff. I mean, the worst of humanity in action. The leaders of God's people are doing the very worst. They drag him outside the city because well, they're going to make a big mess. And they need a heap of rocks to throw at him. They drag him out and begin pelting him with stones. And poor Stephen in the, is the focus of this frenzied 
madness. And time and time again, he's hit. And every blow is smashing the very life out of him, skin and bone being torn apart. It was getting messy. It was getting hot. It was sweaty work. And you wouldn't want to get blood on your coat, would you? So they took their coats off. And they laid their coats carefully at the foot of a young man by the name of Saul. Verse 59 says, As they stoned him, so just get in the moment, as they are pelting rocks in absolute fury at him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. He's just pelting rocks at him. And with that he died. And chapter 8 says, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Then it says, a great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. Let's not skim over that, that verse too quickly. Just try to imagine what's going on. You've got, remember you've got about probably 5,000 plus people, could be 10,000 people who've decided to follow Jesus. And one man who is full of God's grace and power has been killed by people throwing rocks at him. And it says that then a great wave of persecution. I, I think when we imagine what that meant was suddenly bloodlust took over many of these Jews. You know, it, it's, like, it's like a war zone. Suddenly it's just, we can just kill any of these Christians. So I don't, we don't know how many of them were killed. Or beaten up. I mean, it just, it was like it just, just spread. Sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. A great persecution. And get this, it, look, you can just imagine how bad this must have been. It says, all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. So the guy heading up is the man who was holding the coats, looking after the coats. And he went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So just before Jesus returned to his father's side, he told his disciples, he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I guess they never would have expected that would come about through bloody persecution and the murder of this man Stephen, a man full of God's grace and the power of God. You see, God's program, his plan, his will for his world marches forward regardless of opposition from men. And that's what really struck me with the story of Mariam and Maziah is that they went into one of the darkest places on God's earth at the moment for Christians. And two young girls, who at the time were about 25, they went in there and they organised 
to have thousands of Bibles smuggled in. And then they got a map and they worked out on the map of their Tehran, of their city, they divided up the map and they just said, we're going to distribute Bibles. So they would go to one square and they would just put a little Bible in every letterbox. 25, you know, more than 20,000, almost 25,000 Bibles they distributed. And then eventually they were caught. And they went through all this suffering and there's been a whole lot of other suffering that we don't know about that other believers have gone through. But it's now thought that the church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. Isn't that amazing? And they jokingly say, they said, the authorities were looking for, for, for some large Christian organisation. Little did they know it was two girls with backpacks. It's a classic story, isn't it? Of what God does. And I think it's exactly the same story here for the early church, that they never would have expected that this is how it would be birthed. You see, throughout this beautifully succinct summary of God's working, Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, it is clear there is a progression in God's plan. And since his blessings aren't limited just to the temple or to just his people Israel, they had better watch out. They'd better not resist him as they had in the past. You know, we can do the same thing. We can make the same mistake. We become like the Pharisees who murdered Stephen. Whenever we think, whenever we begin to think that God only works through one program, our program, or one denomination, our denomination, or one worship style, our worship style. That God is only interested in our type of people. That an affluent Western lifestyle is our God-given right. Even though it largely comes at the expense of the poorer nations of the world who are exploited and ripped off so we can have all our stuff. Whenever you go to Bunnings and you buy a drill for 25 bucks, wow! $25 for a power drill. That's only possible, okay? Because a whole lot of people are working for a dollar a day. You know, we can make the same mistake when we believe we have the right to say to our Redeemer, to our Lord, our King, I just want things to stay as they are. See, this passage is about more than just the Pharisees rejecting the gospel. And it's easy for us to miss the point. This passage is also about those who have accepted Christ, who call him your Lord, yet who will not do as he commands. Just think about, for a moment, about the thousands of believers who were directly impacted by this outbreak of persecution. The text says, all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. We know from the early actors of chaps that there were now thousands of believers. And this tells us they were all scattered. The Lord had commanded them to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But what did they do? They took the gospel to Jerusalem. Wonderful things were happening. They started, as we've discovered in the previous chapters, they started selling property so that no one was in need. And it sounds as though it was just the most wonderful time. God was doing great things. People were coming to faith. It was just wonderful. 
but they weren't going out into all the world with the gospel. You see, within a few short months, it was starting to focus on us in Jerusalem. And it wasn't going to be achieved without a whole heap of people sacrificing the comforts of home, of giving away property and business, severing community networks that stretch back for thousands of years, maybe, certainly hundreds. Is it any wonder that they resisted and began to be complacent? We can do the same thing. You know, when we say, I've worked hard all my life, now is my time. I've retired and I'll spend my days doing as I please without regard for the Lord's call in our life. You know, we become just like these men and women. And for them, it took an outbreak of extreme violence to get them out of Jerusalem, get them doing what the Lord had commanded them to do. The question is, what will it take for the Lord to prod you into doing what he is calling you to do? What is it going to take? Because we see from this story, it was only a couple of months before it, it took a bloody persecution for people to start saying, no, this is serious. If he is our Lord, if he is our King, we've got to do what he says. It's a challenging passage, isn't it? It is for me. It really is. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that we would continually be coming back to this call of you on our life to be your witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let us never become complacent. Lord, I pray we would not resist what your spirit is doing. It is so easy for us to say, no, I just want everything to stay as it is. But that is so often not the way. That so often you bring us into times of uncertainty and instability because you are actually wanting to move us on to greater things. Lord, I pray we would hear your word today. Amen.